This is Calvary Baltimore's Harford County Bible Study with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Well, I think besides the genealogy, this is the most excited I've been for a study. So we are yeah. um, <laughs> ready. Is this an all-nighter? Uh-huh. uh-huh. Clear your schedules. Uh, we got chilly. <laughs> so, a uh, quick little recap. So far in the life of Jesus... We have been shown how the story of Israel has been fulfilled and retold in the life of Jesus. Hopefully this is all sounding familiar. Uh, The Genesis chapter 1 opens with the genealogy of Abraham. And so we're introduced to to Jesus as as part and incorporated in Abraham's story. And then next we're introduced to Jesus' father, Joseph. Both the Joseph in Genesis is a dreamer and so is Jesus' father. He's a dreamer. Then in chapter 2, we are introduced to a new pharaoh uh, who happens to be Herod, king of Israel. So Israel has become the new Egypt, and Egypt become the new place of rescue, refuge as Joseph, uh, having a dream from an angel. He brings Jesus and Mary, the mother of our Lord, to Egypt uh, for safety. Then in chapter 3, we have Jesus' baptism. So we've gone from Genesis to the opening chapters of Exodus, and now we have at Jesus's baptism a type of Red Sea crossing. Both of them end with God's people heading into the wilderness, and Jesus now is heading into the wilderness. And when you read the story of the Exodus, as soon as the Israelites get into the wilderness, the trouble starts. <laughs> Immediately, they're fighting. There's arguments. There's strife. There's problems. Um, And that's where we are at in the way Matthew is telling the gospel according to St. Matthew. So here we are in chapter 4. And like how the Israelites failed in many of the situations, tests, and trials within the wilderness, here we will see that Jesus is faithful when Israel and mankind was faithless. Again, Jesus is telling us this story uh, in many ways, retelling the story of Israel, but with a key difference. Jesus is going to reverse the failures that the Israelites had consistently made. Uh, So Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is in the wilderness. uh, And before we read chapter 4, I want to read the last verse of chapter 3, since they are connected. So Matthew 3, 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Uh, Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, Satan is the one doing the tempting, but the Spirit is leading Jesus to be tempted. Mm-hmm. And structurally, God is testing Jesus as he tested Israel. But unlike Israel's failures, Jesus, of course, is going to succeed. (laughs) Jesus, Matthew's retelling, of course, the story of Israel in Jesus. And the whole point is, is Jesus is going to live the perfect life that Israel should have. Now, the other thing to keep in mind here is God, like a good father, He allows and leads mankind to become tempted, not because God wants us to sin. God does not test us because he wants us to sin. Satan tests us because he wants us to sin. God tests us because he wants to mature us. You know, 
if, if anyone's ever dealt with children long enough, one little thing ruins their whole day. Uh, and it's something really small. My mashed potatoes were touching my chicken. You know, oh, I can't eat this. This is ruined. Uh, and we have to mature through these micro trials until eventually real trials. And, you know, at some point you get a flat tire when you're a kid and your whole day's ruined. The car's worthless. Now when you're, you know, older, it's just part of your day. You got to keep on. God allows these things to mature us. Uh, and so God uh, is showing us this maturity. Not, not that Jesus needs to be matured because he's truly God, but Jesus is also truly man. And so there's an aspect that the Father treats Jesus as if he would a human. And, of course, Jesus is going to live the perfect life that us humans should have. Uh, Paul talks on this in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. So, again, this is very, very scriptural. Uh, verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, again, how long were the Israelites in the wilderness? 40 years. 40 years. Maybe just a weird coincidence. I think not. Uh, verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the first temptation is Satan tempts with bread. If you remember the story of Israel in the wilderness, the very next chapter after the Red Sea crossing in the Song of Moses, uh, in Exodus 15, the Israelites grumbled against God and Moses because they wanted food like they had in Egypt. Uh, well, here in Matthew, Satan is tempting Jesus the very way Israel had failed in the wilderness. Uh, Jesus has just entered into the wilderness, and the temptation to grumble, grumble for bread is now present. But again, here's a theme of tonight. Jesus is the perfect son of God, and he passes the hunger test. So for those of you that get hangry and sympathize with this... <laughs> Jesus overcame his anger, if there is such a thing in, in God. He totally and completely trusts the plans and the provisions of our Lord. And so he doesn't grumble. And then we, we talked about that uh, last, last Bible study in, in Abingdon. So we'll keep moving. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God. You notice that in little... Little dig there that if, that's kind of a big word. If you are the son of God, what we just read in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, that the father spoke from heaven and said, you are my only, my, my son. Uh, so the, now Satan immediately is challenging the word of God, which should come as no surprise to us if we know Genesis chapter 3, did God really say, was how he started this whole debacle off. So, um, one, Satan hadn't changed a bit. And secondly, why would he? Because it consistently works with us. But again, the theme of our night, Jesus is the perfect son of God and he does not fail. Uh, verse six, and he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on the other, uh, on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Here's my suspicion. Uh, I may be wrong, but I'm going to say it anyways. <laughs> uh, 
after Jesus passed the first test, I believe the second test from Satan here is a fact-finding test. I think Satan's looking for details. Because if you think about it, why would Jesus throw himself off of the tabernacle? It doesn't make any sense to a man who's hungry. (laughs) Uh, So Satan quotes Psalm 91 to Jesus. And that's Psalm 91, verse 9. And I'm going to read it. Because you have made the Lord uh, your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. First of all, the context of Psalm 91 is one of flattery. Psalm 91 is talking about this faithful person who's put all their trust in the Lord. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. And you could almost hear Satan putting on this schmooze to Jesus. Well, your faith is in the God most high. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. He's he's doing this dance. Uh, and so, first of all, Satan starts his temptation off with flattery. And I think it's a pretty good moment to pause, because if you get in some Pentecostal circles, they'll talk about leading the devil around by a chain and crushing his head, and they talk about him like, smite, smite the serpent. We have to remember... Satan was introduced to us in Genesis 3 as the most crafty creature in the garden. Mm-hmm. He's no dummy. I, it, it's, it's not an appropriate song, but Symphony of the Devil by the Rolling Stones. It talks about Satan through the ages. He's like, I was there for all of it. And it's true. He's really smart. Um, there is a intertestamental book, and what I mean by that, if there's... The First Testament and the Second Testament, which is the New Test, Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, in between Malachi and, and Matthew, there's 400 years there. Now, a lot of people act like nothing happened in those 400 years. No, a lot of things happened in those 400 years. And there were a lot of books written in those 400 years. For example, First Enoch, which is quoted a few times in the scriptures. Uh, another book that was written during that intertestamental period is called The Assumption of Moses. Now, the book of Jude references the assumption of Moses. We know that because we found one of the fragments in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there it was verbatim uh, that Jude quoted. So, is that, uh, is that him being resurrected? That's the one. So the assumption of Moses is, the one, is a, a fragmentation that we found about um, when Moses was taken up into heaven. There's a, a law, There's a scroll written about that time period during the intertestamental period, that says what happened on that account. Now, we can't say that any of that's biblical, because all we know that's biblical is what's in the Bible. So if, for example, everyone talks about First Enoch, well, what's really in First Enoch? All we know that we that is true out of First Enoch is what the Bible says is true. The parts that the Bible doesn't reference, we can't have we can't say it's infallible. Well, there's a portion of the Assumption of Moses that's talked about, and it's where Michael the archangel and Satan are arguing over the body of Moses. If you read that account, they're having this bicker back and forth. It's very much a duel of words. It's fascinating. But one of the things I realized when I was reading it um, was Satan was trying to get Michael the archangel to say that Moses was a murderer and didn't belong in heaven. Because Satan was saying he was a murderer and he belonged in hell. Now, a lot of people, on the surface level, it looks like that Satan is trying to get Michael to argue with him. 
But really what he's trying to do is he's trying to get Michael to admit, to say that Moses belongs in heaven, thus making Moses the judge, or Michael the judge. Michael's not the judge. Michael was called to get Moses and bring him to God because God's the judge. So there's these layers of deceit happening in that book. And, and we, we're, we're seeing that here in, in, in the temptation of Jesus. He's, he's tempting Jesus, but really he's, first, as we see now, he's flattering him. But now we also see he's trying to get specific information from Jesus. So when Satan quotes Psalm 91, 12, on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. If you read one more verse after that, it says, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Who's the serpent? <laughs> He's trying to, he wants to get a, this is a worm on a fish hook here. He wants to find out exactly what Jesus is going to do to him. And so it looks like he's saying, jump off the temple. No, no, no. He's fishing for information on how Jesus responds to this. And so he, he's trying again to get some details. He's very crafty in what he's doing. Look at it. It is. There's layers of, what are you doing, Jesus? <laughs> and so they're in this word game. But of course, Jesus is the perfect son of God. He's also smarter than Satan. So he doesn't take the bait. Jesus says, verse 7, Jesus said to them, again, it is written. Jesus goes right to the scripture. He doesn't argue, no clues, no insight, right to scripture. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, thinking of the wilderness period, in Exodus 15, we have the celebration of crossing the Red Sea, where we have that beautiful song of Moses, which is awesome, that song of Moses. Then, the very next chapter, Exodus 16, the Israelites are already complaining and grumbling about bread. They want bread, they want food, uh, which is exactly the first temptation of Satan here. Then in Exodus 17, the Israelites, Exodus 17, 7, um, I'm going to go all the way down to 17, 7 here. But though you have lots of alarms, don't you? I have. It happens when you get older. <laughs> There's a timer for everything. That's yeah. all right. Uh, a timer, a reminder. And a reminder. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so in Exodus 17, 7, it says, and he called the name of the place uh, uh, Massa and Meribia uh, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Like the second failure in the wilderness um, was the Israelites, they were testing the Lord. They wanted God to provide for them. And we just read from Exodus 17, 7, this was a test. They wanted to see if God would do what they wanted him to do. And so again, Jesus says, I'm not Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's not falling into the very trap that the Israelites fell into. Um, so we can see the same exact pattern emerging in these temptations. And then verse 8. This is maybe the strangest of the three temptations. Uh, just as a fun fact, this isn't in my notes, but I'm going to share it anyways. Uh, the gospel, according to St. Luke, he also has these three um, temptations written here, except Luke changes the order. Luke actually puts the, um, uh, the 
the king, the kingdoms in their glory uh, in in the, the the middle place. So that there's an inversion there. Um, but that's for another time. Uh, so verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So Satan has taken Jesus. Interesting. We started in the desert. Then we moved to the pinnacle of the temple. And now we're on a very high mountain. So slowly, Satan's taking him higher and higher and higher to trap him. I don't know why that is, but it's something that's very purposeful. But hopefully one day the Lord will, will show me here. But So there's an ascension here. As the temptations get more and more trickery, <laughs> more and more tempting or whatever they may be, so do the, the places of temptation. And then verse 9. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. I can't figure out what Satan's doing here. I I don't know if he's playing mind games. Uh, I hear some, I hear some. Some commentators say this was a Hail Mary pass. You know, this was one last attempt to get God because it seems so foolish. Jesus would never bow, bow to him. So this this doesn't add up. However, notice the first two temptations. There is some, some detail here that we can run on. The first two temptations start with if, if you are the son of God. But on this final test, there is no if, I think what's very revealing here is Satan knows exactly who he's talking to by the third temptation, which is why he offers to give him all the kingdoms that he possesses, because he knows this is the son of God. <laughs> and he admits it. He, you know, he, he, he testifies to it. So maybe Satan knew Jesus was God. Maybe he didn't. But what we do know is that by the third temptation, Satan definitely knows for sure. Now, we also know that that. No, it is that this last temptation is Satan's ultimate test. Uh, and we know this because he offers Jesus literally everything. Mm-hmm. It's literally, he's betting the house on this one. Mm-hmm. And so he offers him victory, uh, uh, as he would view as the simplest terms, bow the knee, Jesus, and it's all yours. And what what is he really offering? Because his second test in Psalm 91 kind of clues us that he knows that he's the serpent and this guy's come to crush the serpent. So he's offering Jesus victory without a bruised heel. Oh, interesting. He, he's offering Jesus uh, the world without the way of the cross. Now, I don't think Satan knows fully about the cross yet. I think if Satan knew that's how he was going to lose, he wouldn't have killed Jesus. I, 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 that's my suspicion. Uh, I don't think so. I think so. This is a famous uh, Martin Luther calls the cross the devil's mousetrap. And the fact that Satan thought he was getting a big old piece of cheese, but really he lost his head. I I don't, I don't, I, again, this is speculation, but I don't think Satan would have gone through everything he did to kill Jesus if he thought that would be the moment of his kingdom's defeat. It doesn't make sense. So I think, I, but he knows that there's some bruising because the father promised it in Genesis mm-hmm. chapter three. So I think he's, and of course, when you look at every other prophet that Satan has dealt with through the Old Testament, again, the reference the Rolling Stones, <laughs> Symphony of the Devil, uh, 
you know, he knows that this is probably not going to end well for Jesus in some way, and we know he intends to kill him, which he does. Uh, so he's offering Jesus all the kingdoms of the world without any of the bruises, without any of the cuts, without any of the trouble. Uh, and of course, Jesus refuses um, because, and here's a great lesson for us, and I think young people need to hear this, Satan has nothing to offer us greater than anything Jesus has to offer us. <laughs> you know, Satan, what are you going to give me that my Father in heaven doesn't possess? It could give me whenever he wants. Uh, so connecting Israel's wand, uh, wilderness wanderings, the third temptation may be drawing from the golden calf story. Uh, I can't think of another place in the Old Testament quite clear as uh, bowing down to false idols as I can the golden calf. Uh, and it, it makes sense because if you listen, if you read Deuteronomy chapter 6, Jesus responds, he keeps responding to Satan with Scripture, all three from Deuteronomy, might I add. So Jesus is communicating in wilderness texts. Uh, but uh, you know, you know the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, all right, I'm going to read it. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you, uh, you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And there's this very, very much the Old Testament Great Commission in, in the Shema. Uh, and it's really about families. And then at the very end of, of the Shema and, and, and that sort of thing. Shema. Shema. Don't ask me. It's in Hebrew. <laughs> uh, verse 13 uh, in Deuteronomy 6, it says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Uh, uh, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So there's what Jesus just quoted. Again, the very next verse gives us a clue as not only to what Satan's saying, but to what Jesus is saying. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.14, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the other peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst as a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to go after you like everyone else. That's not what this is, Satan, which I love. Um, so three times in today's story, Jesus is the faithful son that Israel was not. And we see that the three temptations parallel the temptations within the wilderness. Uh, and, and really a, a note worth taking here, how many times was Peter tested? Three times. How many did Peter succeed in? <laughs> <laughs> he denied Christ three times before that rooster crowed. Uh, again, I think that is very much a way of saying this was, it truly took God to do what we couldn't. God was the only one who could reconcile us to himself. I really believe that with Peter's failure there. Uh, and then we'll read our last verse. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And I just... Love that portion. So, few thoughts here. We're done already. Looking at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going to be tempted three times again. Most people don't connect this, but at the end of, of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 27, Jesus is going to be tempted three more times. 
and he's tempted specifically on the cross, and it's at another time of testing. Matthew 27, verse 39, and those who passed by derided him and wagged their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Do you see that word if again? If. If. The Jewish people echo the temptations of Satan and say, if you are the son of God, as a means of testing him. Then verse 41, Matthew 27. So also the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocking him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Again, if, if. So the, all the leaders of Israel do the same thing the people are. And then Matthew 27, 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. There's our three temptations. So we have the people, we have the leaders, and now we have the despised, the two murder, the two thieves on the cross. And they're all testing Jesus in this same exact manner. The Gospel of Matthew reveals that not only has Israel become a new Egypt, but that the people of Israel and the leaders end up behaving just like Satan himself in Matthew chapter 4. The, the evil and the spiritual deadness of Israel had rose to such a place that they literally sound like Satan by the time mm. Jesus has done his ministry. Mm. Um which I think says a lot about when religion goes wrong. <laughs> There's nothing seems to be worse than when a church or a synagogue or whatever completely abandons the God whom they serve for whatever ideals they want. And I think it becomes very satanic, quite frankly. Um, secondly, all through Matthew, Jesus' opponents attack Jesus' identity with if, if you are the Son of God. Really powerful in Matthew 27, so a few verses later, when Jesus died, this is what it says. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I love that little note. It's almost if God karate chops it, you know? <laughs> Uh, and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. Before, right before Jesus' death, all of Israel echoes if. As soon as Jesus dies, the Gentiles say that was the Son of God. Immediately the Spirit moves them. Because remember when it says, uh, uh, who do people say that I am? And then, you know, uh, Simon says, well, some say that you're a prophet. He says, who do you say that I am, Simon Barjoni? He says, I believe you're the Son of God. He says, truly, my Father in heaven has revealed that to you. This is a move of the Spirit mm -hmm. on the ascension. Immediately, the Holy Spirit grabs a bunch of Gentile soldiers. Seconds, minutes after the, the crucifixion happens here. And this is a real introduction to how the birth of the early church is going to go. The Gentiles were going to 
be added to the church at a much faster mm-hmm. pace than the Israelites were, which is we see that plain as day all, you know, all through the New Testament. And eventually Rome was going to become Christian as these Roman centurions uh, mm-hmm. are representing the Roman Empire here. Um, and then thirdly, uh, Jesus is not just the new Israel and a new Moses here. And I thought of you today when I was writing this, but he's also the new Adam because we said you wanted to talk about Adam last. I didn't forget. (laughs) So Jesus is the new son of the father. So Jesus, he's a new, he's, he's a new Jerusalem. We've talked about that a lot today. Last week, we talked about him as a new Moses, um, of course, it says that he's fasting and praying. When you connect the fasting and prayers uh, to Moses within the wilderness period, it said he interceded for the people in Israel. So Jesus is praying for the Israelites in this 40-day time of fasting. So he's a new Moses in that respect. But also in this passage, he's also the new Adam. And like how Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, and Adam and Eve failed. Now the new and greater Adam is being tempted again with food, might I add. So he got both Adam and Eve with food and he tried to get Jesus with food, of course. But Jesus faces the temptation of the serpent, but unlike the first Adam, the new Adam succeeds in overcoming him. So, a lot of people give Eve a lot of flack <laughs> for eating that fruit. Really? It was Adam's failure. The, the, the failure of, of, of Eve there was Adam's failure. If you read Genesis chapter 2, God told man to be fruitful and to keep the garden. That word keep there in the Hebrew means to watch over. It's the same word in Nehemiah for watchman on the wall that they were there to have their swords drawn ready for battle. So the end of Genesis chapter two, Adam is the warrior to guard his bride and the garden from evil. Almost three or four verses later, in comes the enemy, the serpent. Adam was supposed to bounce the serpent out of the garden, but he didn't. He entertained the whole idea. And of course, it then took his bride. Well, here's Jesus, and he's fighting a new serpent in a new place. And who's Jesus doing all of this for anyways? The church, which is the bride of Christ. And Jesus bounces the serpent the way Adam should have for his bride. So here again, now Jesus is reversing the temptation of Adam back in the garden by fighting the serpent for us, doing what he should have done. Uh, so there's some strong Adam themes here. Did that make sense? Yeah. Yay, okay. Yeah. I was hoping that that, that worked. I'm glad I waited. <laughs> uh, and then our fourth and final point here. <clears throat> Satan proposes that Jesus should take a shortcut to become king. Uh, <laughs> uh, and at the cross, the Pharisees taunt Jesus to come off of the cross. Again, that's another shortcut. Uh, and all the while, the question of Jesus as uh, Jesus's sonship is in the background. What Matthew was showing us here in Matthew 4 and Matthew 27 and all through the gospel is that sonship, and, and what I mean by sonship is being a child, a, a son or a daughter of God. And of course, that involves all of us. 
ideally we're all believers in here, and that, that means we belong to God as his child. But Jesus here, again, he was truly God, but he was also truly man. He's fully man. And he's modeling perfect sonship for us, that we can see how perfect humanity should respond. And Jesus is showing us here that sonship is not recognized through great works of power. Do you notice the evil in this book? Keep asking Jesus for signs. Jesus, make bread. Jesus, jump off the pinnacle. Jesus, come off the cross. And Jesus is showing us here that sonship, be... To answer the if question, I don't answer that by performing large miracles. <laughs> the, 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 Jesus is showing us here that sonship is not recognized through great works of power, but through loving, faithful obedience to the Father. Jesus had the power to turn stones to bread. In fact, remember he said in another part of the gospel, I can turn turn these stones to the sons of Abraham if I wanted to. Uh, and, and Jesus could jump off the tabernacle if he wanted to. He could walk on water. He could do whatever he wanted. But a true child of God proves its status, not through works, but through faithfulness. Remember what Jesus said, a truly, I tell you, a wicked generation seeks for signs. Mm-hmm. And all, all throughout this book, evil people are looking for signs here. Uh, But Jesus, again, he he shows us that mighty works are not the verification of the Father's children. You know, the walking on water, the healings are not signs that we're God's child. And can't we catch that from some more Pentecostal circles? You don't talk in tongues, you're not saved. Mm -hmm. You haven't healed anybody, you're not saved. You know, you haven't done this, you haven't done that, you're, you're not saved. But Jesus, very clearly, that's not how you show your status before the Father. How you show your sonship that you're a son or a daughter of God is through faithful obedience wherever and whenever he puts you places. You know, that that's the, that's the I think the scariest verse in all of the Bible is in Matthew chapter seven. He says, yeah. truly I say to you, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy your name? Didn't we do many things? He says, truly I tell you, I, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. But when you really read that section in Matthew 7, they did mighty works, and they thought that proved that they were God's child. But he says, you weren't my child because you you weren't faithful in obedience. You were not faithful to what I gave you. You know, and so what Jesus is saying here, if the Father's will is to lead me into this desert for 40 days and be starving and thirsty— then I'm going to be faithful and obey even if it kills me. And it was by, by not turning that bread into a stone into bread, by not jumping, but by simply being and waiting on his father and eventually he sent angels to minister to him. That proved the sonship more than if he turned the stones mm-hmm. to bread. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's the same thing with the cross. The father wanted him, remember, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. And the father was like, no, you've got to go to the cross. And it was by staying on that cross, not by ripping himself off and commanding angels to slaughter Jerusalem, that would have proved less that he was God's own son. It was by staying there in perfect obedience. Again, what is the theme of tonight? God is the perfect child of God, the perfect son of God. And he's modeling to us how to be godly, faithful sons and daughters of him. And it's just by being faithful whenever and wherever he puts us. 
And, you know, I think that's just not supernatural enough for some people, but too bad because <laughs> that's the way it is. You know, I, I deal with that a lot with, with young moms. They don't feel fulfilled in, mm. in their, they don't feel like they're doing enough. And, and I understand you want life outside and to do things, of mm. course, but, you know, it's like, but this is the season God has you. Mm-hmm. And this is a high calling. And be faithful with this little one while you have them. And then when they're gone, don't do the empty nest thing. Mm-hmm. Get into something else. <laughs> and be faithful in that season. It's very simple. We just need to be obedient wherever we are, whether we're working on a roof somewhere. We just need to be obedient to God in 95 degree heat. Does the scripture say that when Jesus returns, what is he looking for? Faithful, obedient servants. It's it's so, it's so simple. It's, 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 which is always what's so extraordinary. It's so good. It's such a simple gospel. Yeah, it's so simple. in the world make everything so complicated. <laughs> it's true. You know, do this, do this, do this. Okay, and you're like, just... And Jesus very much, I'm going to stay in this desert because that's where God brought me. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to wait here until he does something else. Mm-hmm. That's simple. So why don't we pray and then we'll... Okay. They're doing enough and... I understand you want life outside and to do things, of mm-hmm. course, but, you know, it's like, but this is the season God has you. Mm-hmm. And this is a high calling. And be faithful with this little one while you have them. And then when they're gone, don't do the empty nest thing. Mm-hmm. Get into something else. <laughs> and be faithful in that season. It's very simple. We just need to be obedient wherever we are, whether we're working on a roof somewhere. We just need to be obedient to God in 95 degree heat. Does scripture say that when Jesus returns, he was looking for faithful, obedient servants? It's so simple. Which is always what's so extraordinary. It's just so good. It's such a simple yeah, that's so simple. in the world make everything so complicated. <laughs> it's true. You know, do this, do this, do this. you're like, just... And Jesus very much, I'm going to stay in this desert because that's where God brought me. And I'm going to wait here until he does something else. Thanks for joining us for Calvary Baltimore's Harford County Bible Study Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch or come visit us at Calvary Baltimore, head to calvarychapelbaltimore.org for service times and directions. If you have a prayer request or you've just been blessed by today's teaching and want to say hi, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. To donate to the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. Pastor Josh and all of us at Calvary Baltimore consider it a blessing to serve you. We hope you'll join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore Harford County Bible Study Podcast.